How many of you read? How, how many of you have read or heard the story of Jonah before? Okay, so wow, that's a lot. Uh, it's one of the most familiar books of the Bible. Even if you've never read Scripture before, you might be familiar with it. Um, so I want I want to say this at the outset: whether you've read this book, taught it, heard it a thousand times, or you're encountering it for the first time this morning, I guarantee you that you are going to see something new in this study. Guarantee you. Even these first three verses guaranteed or your money back um, financial piece for you all that are here, right? So I want to start off with an easy question for the book of Jonah. Uh, Who is the main character in the book of Jonah? All right. All right. Very good. God is the main character in the book of Jonah. Right? Jonah is mentioned by name 18 times in the book. God is mentioned by name, either Lord or Yahweh or God, almost 40 times in the book of Jonah. God is the main character. Jonah is not the hero of this book. He's not even the main character of this book. We're going to get to know him, though, and I'm sure that we're not always going to like what we see in him uh, because my guess is that we're going to see quite a bit of ourselves in him. But God is our hero here. The book uses Jonah the prophet to tell us something about God. So that's what we're going to pay attention to as we start to read this book today. But it's a very familiar book to many of us. What's the single most familiar part of this book? What do you remember most? Right, right. Getting swallowed by the whale or big fish or sea monster or whatever. We'll, we'll touch on that when we, when we get there, right? Jonah gets swallowed by this thing and he survives. And, and that has fascinated both Christians and non-Christians for, for centuries. Jonah-like stories are still coming across our culture today. Uh, Just in 2022 alone, there were no less than three Pinocchio movies. I mean, Pinocchio, you know, is based on, or at least part of it is based on the story of Jonah. He gets swallowed by this great monstro, this giant fish at the end, then he survives in in the belly of this thing. And three movies in one year on Pinocchio. Hollywood has definitely run out of stories to tell. You probably only heard of at least two of these up here, right? The Disney remake and then the, uh, the one that was on Netflix. And you, you probably didn't hear of the third one because it starred Paulie Shore and the guy from Napoleon Dynamite. I mean, that, there's no surprise that that was not on our radar, I think, right? But three movies in one year. I, I just recently heard of a new book coming out whose plot mimics Jonah in some ways. It's all about a guy getting swallowed by a whale and his, his survival in the stomach of this creature. Now, I'm not recommending this. I don't know anything about this other than it caught my attention this week. And I said, you know what? This, this story, this tale of Jonah is still fresh on our minds, isn't it? 2,500 years later or more, our culture continues to be fascinated with Jonah. But Jonah is not just an idea. It's not just a a story. It's not just a tale. Jonah is an historical narrative. It's about a real prophet where real things happen to this real prophet. In fact, we're going to see that the book opens just like we're jumping into the middle of a plot. So turn to your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. We do have some Bibles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We're happy to give you one either for the morning or for yours to keep. Jonah chapter 1, we'll start right at the top in verse 1. We're only going to try for three verses today, that's it. And you're going to get a lot out of those three. So look at Jonah 1.1. Now, 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. Now, I do like how the ESV puts the word now at the beginning of this short little book. It might sound like a strange way to start a book of the Bible, and in a way, it kind of is. But this word reflects the Hebrew very well. The Hebrew text, the original language of Jonah, begins with a word that we can translate, and so it was, or and so it happened, now, so on. It reads like we are jumping into the middle of something that has already begun before we got there. In preparation for this series, I've, I've read not a few commentaries who claim that this word is the equivalent of once upon a time. But I don't think so. This is not a fairy tale that we're reading. It's not one of Aesop's fables. This is an historical narrative. Now, how do I know that? Why do I think that? Because this book begins like other historical narratives in Scripture. The book of Joshua begins with the same exact Hebrew word as the book of Jonah. The book of Judges begins with the same exact Hebrew word. Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Esther. Many other historical narratives in Scripture begin with the same beginning as the book of Jonah which tells me that the narrator is communicating to us, number one, this is history. This really happened just like all the other histories that you know of in Scripture. And number two, this is a continuation of the grander narrative of Scripture. It jumps us right into the middle of something that's already been going on. God is continuing his work with his people through this prophet that we call Jonah. But it's not just the opening word that sets the scene and tells us what's going on. The opening phrase is also quite common in Scripture. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying. The word of the Lord came is a technical phrase that's used well over a hundred times in other passages of Scripture, and it's usually used to signal a prophetic word of revelation, a word from God coming through his prophets to his people. It's a catchphrase in Scripture that we see all over the place. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. But it typically is used to establish a story that is already happening, or at least to jump us into a story that's already happening. It's used mainly when the prophet or the prophet's mission are already established in the text of Scripture. In other words, every time this phrase is used, it doesn't open a book, almost every time, It doesn't introduce a prophet, but it signals yet another instance where God is speaking through this prophet. Now, the title of our five-week series in Jonah is a great mission from a merciful God. The word of the Lord is being sent through Jonah, a prophet on a mission. It's a great mission. It's a mission of mercy. We'll see that. And yet we're going to see that Jonah is perhaps the one who needs mercy most of all in this mission. But the book hits the ground running by throwing us into a scene already taking place. We are not told how the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. We are not told when this mission came to Jonah. We are just told yet again the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, if that's the case, where are we supposed to know this guy from? Where do we know Jonah from in other scripture? Well, the only other place in the Old Testament that mentions him is a book called 2 Kings. Let me read a little passage from 2 Kings chapter 14. It says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. 
and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath Hefer. Now here's what this tells us. Around 793 BC, an evil king named Jeroboam began to reign over northern Israel. He was a wicked man with a long reign. But God can use even wicked kings to tell us his will. During his reign, he expanded the borders of Israel. And that expansion of the borders of Israel, according to 2 Kings 14, happened as prophesied by the prophet Jonah. God shows grace to this wicked king, to a wicked kingdom during a time of evil in Israel. God allowed that evil king to expand the borders of his territory and he used Jonah to predict that it would happen. So this little tiny passage in 2 Kings actually gives us quite a bit of historical information behind the book of Jonah. That's why we feel like we're jumping right into the middle of something already going on. He's a guy who prophesied about the expansion of Israel during a dark and evil time of Israel's history. The kingdom of Israel was sinning during that day. It was split in two. An evil king reigned up north. Not a really great king reigned down south, usually at least. We know from other biblical history that other prophets were around during this time too. This is significant. The prophets Hosea and Amos also ministered during the time of Jonah. Hosea and Amos ministered during the time of, of Jonah. I want you to take that information and tuck it into your back pocket for a few minutes because we're going to pull back out and use it in a few. But we find out just a few things about Jonah here. His dad's name is Amittai. Amittai means Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is true. That might sound like the first irony in this book, at least in my read. Jonah is literally the son of faithfulness or the son of truth. Except, spoiler alert, he doesn't quite act like it all the time, does he? Jonah's name, by the way, means dove. Dove, like the bird. I'm not really sure that matters. Just a cool Bible fact for you, interesting Bible fact. The narrator doesn't really play with his name at all, but I do think there's a little bit of a play with his father's name. He's the son of truth, the son of faithfulness. He's from a place called Gath Hefer, we're going to see where that is in a few minutes. I'll show you a map in a little bit. But we know a few things about this prophet starting off. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, well, what did God say? Look at verse 2. God said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Three commands... In one verse, three imperatives, three commands, by the way, that I want you to remember throughout this series. Arise, go, and call. Same with me. Arise, go, call. Get up, get going, call out against Nineveh. Arise, go, and call. Can you remember those for a few minutes? Because we will see some of them again. We're going to come back to them even today. Where is Jonah to go? is to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was, God says, that great city. Now, great it was indeed for many different reasons. 
After Jonah's time, Nineveh later became the capital of Assyria. It was part of the Assyrian nation. It would have become the capital of the, the greatest nation on earth at that time, at least in that day. It had a great temple in the city, a temple to uh, the goddess of love, Ishtar. Some historians estimate that at the time of Jonah, it had about 300,000 people in it, which was pretty big for a city in those days. It was a great ancient city in that way. Its ruins have been excavated. Archaeologists have discovered a wall that encircled the city almost eight miles in length. And that's not even the impressive part because the wall was about 100 feet tall and 50 feet wide. Just get that in your minds for a second. Eight miles in length, 100 feet tall, 50 feet wide, all around the city. A wall like that makes a statement, doesn't it? This is a great city. But that's not what catches God's attention. He's not asking Jonah to go on a sightseeing tour of Nineveh because of how cool the city is. The real reason that Nineveh was great in God's eyes is because it was great in sin. It's great in an ironic, negative way. God says their evil has come up before me. Now that's an intriguing way of saying it. Not just they're so evil that I'm paying attention, so go out and call against them. Their evil has risen up or come up before me. It's like they're so evil, they're so blatantly flagrant and wicked in their sin that it's piled up so high it reaches the footstools of heaven. The Bible oftentimes talks about the prayers of the saints being like a a sweet-smelling aroma rising before him, a fragrant aroma, the prayers of the saints. This is the opposite. The stench of sin stings the nostrils of the Almighty God. The Ninevites have gotten so bad that God simply can't ignore them any longer. He must do something about them in order to maintain his character as a just God. Now, why is Nineveh so bad? What have they done to deserve God's attention in this way? You ever see the VeggieTales version of Jonah? When the asparagus Jonah reaches Nineveh, he finds out that they are so bad because they slap people with fish. That is the extent of their evil. I mean, that's kind of entertaining, right? Just leave that going up there for a minute or two. This is for kids. But church, this cheapens the reality of the situation at Jonah or at Nineveh. I'm going to share a few slides with you, and I've got to warn you, these are going to be fairly uncomfortable to see. This is not a bunch of people getting slapped with fish, but this is the reality of the Ninevites' reputation, what we're about to put up here. Assyria, Nineveh, was well known for its violence. What we would call war crimes today, they called everyday living. This is what they were known for. Archaeologists have uncovered many, many artifacts from ancient Assyria, including uh, records, written records from their kings, including carvings and reliefs in their walls. What people decorate their cities with says a lot about who they are. So let me show you a few pictures. And again, these are not G-rated. This first picture is a picture of the Assyrians skinning their captives alive. Notice the person stretched out. It was said that the Assyrians perfected a method of flaying the entire body of skin before the person was able to die. This next picture is a picture of them again skinning their captives alive. I want you to keep in mind, these are the pictures carved into their wall. This was what they wanted people to remember them by. This was their wallpaper. 
Here's a picture of the Assyrians cutting off hands and feet of their enemies. One king named Ashurbanipal was said to have frequently cut off not just the hands and feet, but sometimes even to flay off the lips of his victims and leave them like that alive. Another picture, you'll notice at the very bottom of the screen here, there's a pile of heads. The Assyrians oftentimes made pyramids of decapitated heads outside of the cities that they conquered. That makes quite the statement, doesn't it? Another picture, notice the pile of heads again at their feet. Notice the glee in the Assyrians' face. They seem pretty happy. Little high fives up there or something going on about how they've conquered this city and lopped off the heads of their victims. This next one is pretty graphic. A few victims of the Assyrians impaled on sharp poles. Now I'm supposing as I look at this that these are probably the lucky ones since they were impaled through their chests. There were other ways of doing it that the Assyrians would often boast about that I won't speak of today. Final picture, this one combines several atrocities at once. Two victims up there being skinned alive while the Assyrians pass severed heads to one another. Now I show you those images because I want you to understand the Assyrians, the Ninevites, were bad, bad people. They were an evil lot. And their evil has now risen up to the Lord. When God says their evil has come up before me, God means it. There's a lot more I could say based on these written records. I'm not going to say it. You've seen enough, so I'm not going to continue to detail this. But it's no wonder why 100 years after Jonah, the prophet Nahum calls Nineveh a city of blood. That's what he calls them, biblically, a city of blood. Now, I get that it wouldn't be proper to, to show this in a VeggieTales movie, right? I mean, you're not going to sell a lot of tickets if Larry the Cucumber is meeting the potato peeler. That's just not going to happen. But, but Jonah was not going to a very friendly people. We've got to realize this because our reading of Jonah has been very friendly so far. Oftentimes when you see Jonah on the flannel graph at church or, you know, on, in children's programs, you, you don't talk about these things for obvious reasons. To, to borrow a line from the Lord of the Rings and to mix it up just a little bit, one does not simply walk into Nineveh. But that's Jonah's mission. Jonah has the assignment not just to go there, but to call out against it. When you call out against something, you are not preaching nice, friendly Christian sermons to them. He's, he's not passing out tracts on the boardwalk and saying, have a nice day. He's not encouraging people to have a, a friendly conversation. When you call out against something, you are pronouncing judgment on it because of its sin. This is not a, a, a friendly sermon he's about to preach. You can call out its sin. You're going to tell him what's coming. That's what it means to call out against something. Now, church, I said before, this is the story about God. What do we learn about God? Just in this one verse, what do we learn about God? God notices sin. Sin never goes unnoticed before God. God is just and fair. He is aware of all the suffering in this world, all the atrocities that go on on a day-to-day -day basis. Those, those smaller wrongs that you have suffered, whether suffered at the hands of your government or the hand of your, your work or the hand of your spouse or the hand of your enemy, those smaller wrongs, God notices them. The larger atrocities that we hear about in the news, when zealots kill the missionary in the Middle East, when terrorists bomb a hospital, when nations commit genocide, God notices. God notices. 
And God will one day judge justly and fairly. We've got to trust him. We've got to be patient for it. We have to wait for him to act and we have to pray. We have to pray for God to work. But God is a God who notices sin. Now remember those three commands I told you to remember. Do you remember those? Arise, go, call. Arise, go, call. Well, it might not surprise you what Jonah's reaction is to this great mission. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose, and just stop there, just for a second, three, three words in. Notice that. If you were reading this for the very first time, you have no idea what's coming. First time reader of Jonah. You don't know what's going to happen. You just read the first verb here. What are you thinking? God said, Jonah, arise, go, call, and Jonah arose. All right, good. Good start. Jonah's getting up to obey God. God says, arise, go, call. Jonah arose, but then what? Well, here comes a surprise. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah arose to flee. I would suggest you don't flee from things that you love and things that you find comfortable. You don't flee from cotton candy and bubble gum. You don't flee from puppies. You only flee from the dangerous things, not from harmful things or from harmful things. You flee from the things you dislike. You flee from the, the things that you don't want anything to do with. You flee from things that might threaten your life. The narrator tells us Jonah is fleeing from not the Ninevites, but from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to get a geographical sense of the extent of Jonah's disobedience. Here's a map of ancient Israel and the ancient world. Jonah was from Gath Hefer. You see that uh, kind of highlighted in white there, from Gath Hefer. It's a little village right there in northern Israel. God tells him to arise, to go, and to call out against Nineveh. And Nineveh was located in modern-day Iraq, about 500 miles northeast of Israel. So get up and go 500 miles one way. But instead of going 500 miles northeast, Jonah goes down to Joppa, it's a seaport city, and he gets on a boat going to Tarshish, which most scholars believe is located in modern-day Spain, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. In fact, Tarshish was literally the extent of the known world at that time. It was on the edge of known human civilization. In the Bible, it's sometimes even used prover proverbially for a place that is literally the farthest away. That's where Jonah was going. Jonah could not have tried to go further from God if he tried. This was as far as you get. Now, we shouldn't overlook the fact either that he tries to travel by boat, by sea. The Israelites were not known as seafaring people. Many of them were fishermen, but they didn't sail across the sea. They stayed close to the shore. Many were afraid of the sea. The sea was known for, for chaos and terror and death. We can't forget this. We live in an area where we like to go down to the shore. We like to play in the waves. We like to, to go on the boat for the day, to go fishing, go on cruises. Not the Israelites. You don't, you don't go down to Joppa for a shore vacation. Jonah fled. Why? Why did he run from God's command? Now, there are a lot of opinions on that. You might have already formed a few of them based on what I've said, what I've shared with you. 
Nineveh was a rough neighborhood, wasn't it? If God asked you to leave Yardley, Pennsylvania and move your family to the streets of Kensington, would you do it? If he asked you to go preach in North Korea or Iraq or Syria, would you jump up and go? Was Jonah afraid because of where he was going? Was he afraid because of the difficulties of the mission at hand? Well, I I mentioned the prophets Hosea and Amos. Remember, I told you, tuck them in the back pocket. These were two prophets that were contemporaries of Jonah, preaching at the same time, same location of him. Hosea and Amos both have some interesting things to say about Nineveh and Assyria. Let me put a few verses from their their text of Scripture up here. Hosea 11.5 says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they've refused to return to me. Amos 5.27, I will send you, Israel, into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. During Jonah's time, other prophets were preaching that the Israelites were going to be sent into exile to Assyria, to Nineveh. God was going to use the Assyrians as instruments of judgment upon the Israelites. Nineveh was part of Assyria. Was Jonah afraid to be used as, as an accomplice to help the enemy overcome his own people? Maybe, maybe he's afraid his own people are going to see him as a, a treasonous traitor going to the enemy. Why was he fleeing? Well, the answer is, I'm not telling you yet. Because the text of Scripture doesn't tell us yet. The text does not reveal why he was running. We can make these guesses. We can make you know, suppositions. We can, we can guess why. But if you're going to have to actually wait to the last sermon of the series to really finally find out why did Jonah decide to run. Now, I get that's a little bit cruel of me, isn't it? But it's no different than watching a TV show for over 10 weeks and finding out who the, the whodunit is at the very end, right? If you can wait 10 weeks and, and watch a show or a whole season to find out who done it, I don't mind five weeks here of a little suspense in church. But here's what I want us to focus on today. Take a look at this last verse again, but this time I want to show you something about its structure. I told you I, I saw some things this week in this text that I've never seen before. I want to share some of these with you. This is what we call a chiasm, a chiastic structure. Chiasm comes from a, a Greek letter chi or key, which looks like an X shape. Chiasm is when a verse or a passage has kind of a balance to it, and it works out in this X shape when you compare the different parts to each other. This is a nice example of it. The verse begins and the verse ends with that phrase, Jonah is going to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Notice how the two B elements in this chiasm also relate. Jonah went down to Joppa. Jonah went down into the ship. Same verb is used there. Jonah went down. That's a verb that we want to pay attention to in this book. We are going to see it again. I don't want to spoil too much here, but Jonah's going down. His physical journey matches his spiritual journey, we'll see. He is spatially and spiritually going down throughout this book. He goes down to Joppa. Joppa is down by the shore. It's like when we say we're going down to the shore, he's going down to Joppa. He goes down into the ship. Now, that's a strange way of putting it, but that tells us that it's purposeful. The narrator is purposely reusing a word that you might not normally use with a ship. And typically, when you talk about a ship, you say, I'm going onto the ship or I'm boarding the ship. The narrator says he's going down into the ship. 
Because what is going down if it's not the opposite of arise? Remember what God told Jonah? Arise, go, call. And what does Jonah do? Instead of arising, I mean, he arises for a moment, but then he goes down and he goes down. He does the physical and spiritual opposite of what God commands him to do. Now, two more things I want to point out in this chiasm. First, I want you to notice how many times the narrator repeats the word Tarshish. It almost sounds funny as we say it a whole bunch of times, right? Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. He went to find a ship going to Tarshish. Jonah went with them to Tarshish. The narrator is driving home the point. It should have read Nineveh, Nineveh, Nineveh. And yet it's Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. But here's something I only recently noticed as I was studying this book again. In this verse, in this chiasm, the narrator purposefully changes the way he says to Tarshish. The first time it says Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Even more literally, we could translate that towards Tarshish. The third time, the very last time, it says he went down to go with them to, or again, towards Tarshish. But the second time he says it, right in the middle, the focus of this chiasm, right in the center of that X, the ship was going to Tarshish. The Hebrew there is different. It's different than the Hebrew in the first and third use. Jonah is going towards Tarshish in the direction of that city. The ship, though, is going to Tarshish. Do you see the difference? In other words, the ship is going to make it, but Jonah's not. Jonah, right from the very beginning, tells us and hints towards what's going to happen. Right from the very beginning, God is in control of this whole thing. Jonah thinks he knows where he's going. He thinks he knows how to get there, but he's only aimed in the wrong direction. He's not going to make it. He's going towards it, but he's not going to it. Do you see the difference? One more little tidbit here. Notice the sea elements of this chiasm. He found the ship. He paid the fare. This one also caught me by surprise as I studied it in the original language this week. Every translation I looked at said something similar to this. He paid the fare. But the Hebrew literally reads, he paid her fare. It's a feminine pronoun attached to the word, her fare. Who's fare? I haven't seen any women in this book yet. Who's fare? Well, the only feminine thing, the only feminine noun that's related or that's nearby is the ship. If the text meant to say that Jonah paid for his ticket, it would have said Jonah paid for his fare. In other words, his fare personally. He paid his fare, but the her has to refer to the ship. Jonah paid the ship's fare. As in, Jonah paid for the entire ship. He didn't just purchase a ticket. He paid for the journey. I kind of imagine it like this. He's so desperate to get away. He runs down to Joppa. He sees a ship loading cargo. Where are you going? We're going to Tarshish. And he says he gives a wad of cash that was supposed to be going to Nineveh, right? And he says, I'll pay for the whole thing if you leave just right now. I'm not just paying for a ticket for me to go. I am paying for this boat and I'm telling you where we're going. His desire is so strong to flee from God that he's willing to finance an entire expedition to the furthest place on earth that he can go. Sin is costly. 
In more ways than one, sin is costly. Have you ever considered the cost of sin? The extent that we will go to hide our wickedness, to run from God, how much you would pay to not get caught, how you, what you have to do not to own up to your responsibilities. Sin costs us financially. It costs our time. It costs us relationally. The consequences of sin are never singular and they are never cheap. It's something we're going to learn in this book of Jonah. And the extent that we will go to avoid God and his call is sometimes quite remarkable. Maybe you've tried to run from God before to avoid your responsibility as a Christian. Maybe you've, you've run from church for a time. Life is busy. I might catch a disease. I'm offended by so-and-so. All sorts of excuses we use, right? I mean, I'm a pastor. I've heard many of them. As we read this book, it's very easy to pick on Jonah, isn't it? To judge him for his rebellion. But church, I would suggest that we are really not much better. Isn't this really a crowd of Jonahs that I'm preaching to? And aren't I a Jonah as I preach to you? Our sin is just as costly as his. Our tendency towards rebellion is just as flagrant. Jonah was called to a great mission. A mission from God. A great mission from a merciful God. Church, so are we. The Bible tells us we ought to tell the world Jesus saves. Make disciples of all nations. Arise and go. I was struck by this week as I'm meditating on this passage how similar it is to the Great Commission. Go to the nations. Teach them what I tell you, what I command you. The presence of God language is even there. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So church, as we reflect on this book and as this book reflects us, we have to ask ourselves, what would we do? What are we going to do? Will we flee from the great mission from a merciful God that he has given us? Will we use our resources to finance our sin? Or will we use them to further that mission and get the gospel out to the nations? Little Jonas, will you pray with me? God, I'm humbled by what I see in this text because I see myself in too many ways. I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on Jonah, that really it wouldn't be Jonah that strikes us as much as you. May we see you as a merciful God, a God with a mission. And Lord, may we rise and go and call based on that mission. I pray, Lord, if there are those here that have been running, that have been fleeing from what they're called to do as believers, that today would be the day that they turn back to you. Let them not go down to Joppa. Let them not go down to the ship, Lord, but let them arise and call on your name and see your mercy. Father, thank you for the cross as we sung about before, the beautiful act of redemption. And I pray that as we reflect on our sinfulness, that it would only be in the shadow of our merciful Savior. Help us, Lord, to not just be Jonah's in a negative way, but ultimately, Lord, to fulfill the calling that you've given us. And we ask for help with this this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here, church. Have a great week on a mission.